You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 439 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As we said at the end of the last episode, we're heading back to Virginia with this show. As you guys will recall, the last time we visited the Old Dominion and checked in on what was going on with Robert E. Lee and George Meade, it was with episodes 416 17 and 18, when we looked at what happened during the Bristow Station campaign in October 1863. As y'all will recall, after A.P. Hill got his hat handed to him at Bristow Station on October 14th, and the Federals successfully withdrew into a strong defensive position near the old Bull Run battlefield, Robert E. Lee decided to end what would be his last offensive campaign against the Army of the Potomac. Exactly. And after Bristow Station, Lee pulled the Army of Northern Virginia back below the Rappahannock River. As longtime listeners will be aware, the Rappahannock had more than once served as the line of demarcation between Confederate and Federal forces in Central Virginia. In 1862, the Rappahannock had separated the two armies, and when Ambrose Burnside threw the Army of the Potomac across the river at Fredericksburg that December, he suffered a crushing defeat in front of Marie's Heights, after which he pulled his battered army back across the Rappahannock. In his book on Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, historian Daniel E. Sutherland points out that in order for the Union to experience true success in the Eastern theater of the war, quote, a federal army had to penetrate and establish itself south of the Rappahannock. And the Federals certainly made their attempts to do just that. There was Burnside's failed attempt at Fredericksburg and then his ill-fated Mud March in January 1863, when the Army of the Potomac was thwarted by bad weather before it could even cross the Rappahannock as intended. Several months later, Joseph Hooker, who had succeeded Burnside in command in late January, tried again during the Chancellorsville campaign. That attempt in the spring of 1863 started promisingly enough as Hooker stole a march on Lee, got across the Rappahannock, and got around Lee's flank in the wilderness west of Fredericksburg. 
before Fighting Joe lost his nerve and ended up retreating back across the river. And then that summer, after the end of the Gettysburg campaign, which had removed the war from that part of Virginia for about six weeks, the armies once again ended up staring at each other across the Rappahannock River. Later on, Lee made that brief but unsuccessful foray north of the river, which ended with A.P. Hill's defeat at Bristow Station, after which the Army of Northern Virginia pulled back, resuming its position behind the Rappahannock, where Lee intended to have it spend the winter of 1863-64 in Culpeper County. Lee, however, was aware there was a chance Meade might make one more attempt to come to grips with the Army of Northern Virginia before the turn of the year. On October 28th, Lee wrote to his wife, Mary, quote, General Meade, I presume, will come on again, end quote. And Robert E. Lee was right. In fact, he would not have long to wait for Meade to make a move. If we rewind the clock to the summer of 1863, as July had turned to August, George Meade faced mounting pressure from Washington to force the rebel army into the open and defeat it. You see, the fact that Robert E. Lee's battered army managed to escape back to Virginia after Gettysburg didn't sit well with either General-in-Chief Henry Halleck or Abraham Lincoln and his cabinet. With Grant's capture of Vicksburg, Rosecrans' success in Middle Tennessee with the Tullahoma campaign, and of course the federal victory at Gettysburg, Lincoln believed a quick end to the war was now possible, and he was increasingly frustrated by Meade's deliberate command style. Meade's relative lack of activity in August did little to ease Lincoln's receding faith in his abilities. It didn't matter that Lincoln's directive not to jeopardize Washington as Meade pursued Lee handcuffed Meade, or that Meade was being prudent, looking for the right opening to strike the rebels. A short-lived opportunity finally arrived in early September when James Longstreet and two of his divisions left the Army of Northern Virginia to go to Tennessee and aid Braxton Bragg in his attempt to recapture Chattanooga. But soon thereafter, after the federal defeat at Chickamauga, Meade lost the 11th and 12th Corps, which were sent to shore up William Rosecrans' army at Chattanooga. Even with the loss of those troops, the Army of the Potomac was still about 70,000 strong, but the loss of two corps necessarily meant that Meade had to rethink his plans to strike the rebels. Well, it was Robert E. Lee, however, who made the next move, leading to the clash at Bristow Station on October 14th. As we know, after that, with the Federals having given A.P. Hill a bloody nose and then successfully making it back into the defenses around the old Bull Run battlefield, Lee realized his attempt to regain the initiative had failed, and he withdrew south, pulling back across the Rappahannock, where he waited to see if Meade might make one more attempt to come to grips with the Army of Northern Virginia before the turn of the year. 
Neither Abraham Lincoln nor Henry Halleck was happy with the telegram they received from George Meade on the evening of October 20th. In it, Meade informed them that Lee was safely behind the Rappahannock River once again and that as the rebels had withdrawn to the south, they had destroyed the Orange and Alexandria Railroad as they went. After explaining the challenges he would face moving the Army of the Potomac South toward a confrontation with Lee, particularly the time it would take to repair the railroad, Meade let Halleck and Lincoln know that he was ready to go into winter quarters, saying, quote, It seems to me, therefore, that the campaign is virtually over for the present season. Meade received Halleck's terse response the night of October 21st. Quote, if you can conveniently leave your army, the president wishes to see you tomorrow. <laughs> well, talk about getting called to the principal's office. Well, in any case, Meade started out on the morning of October 22nd, and by that afternoon he was in Washington. Meade met with Halleck, and then the two generals proceeded to the White House. After meeting with Lincoln, George Meade wrote to his wife, telling her, quote, the president was, as he always is, very considerate and kind. He found no fault with my operations, although it was very evident he was disappointed that I had not got a battle out of Lee. Because it was late, Meade and his staff spent the night in Washington before returning to the Army the next day. Meade later maintained that during the meeting at the White House, Lincoln agreed that, quote, there was not much to be gained by a farther advance. Well, given his perception of the meeting, Meade no doubt returned to his headquarters, ready to carry out his plans to put the army into winter quarters. He must, therefore, have been surprised when he received the following message from Halleck on October 24th. Quote, The President desires that you prepare to attack Lee's army. As surprising as it might have been, there was certainly no mis misunderstanding that the presidential order wasn't open to appeal, so George Meade set to work devising a plan of action. Lee's position along the Rappahannock was fairly strong with Dick Yule's corps extending from Kelly's Ford to just above the railroad bridge at Rappahannock Station. A.P. Hill's corps continued the line west and guarded a number of fords. Jeb Stewart's cavalry patrolled both flanks. Two points remained especially vulnerable, both part of Yule's sector, Kelly's Ford and Rappahannock Station. If Meade did have a go at him before the turn of the year, Lee thought that Kelly's Ford was the most likely spot the Yankees would try to cross the river. That's because at Kelly's Ford, the higher wooded bluff on the north bank commanded the southern bank, so Lee knew he would have a problem successfully repelling a determined enemy attack at the ford. To that end, instead of fighting along the river at that point, he established a stronger position behind it. To the west, at Rappahannock Station, Lee maintained a tête de pont on the north side of the river. A tête de pont was essentially a fortified work designed to protect a bridgehead. There seems to be some question as to just why Lee maintained this bridgehead at Rappahannock Station on the far side of the river. 
A couple of theories have been advanced, none of which are terribly convincing. Uh, At any rate, in the end, it was a mistake, one for which the Federals would make Lee pay. On November 7th, Meade set the Army of the Potomac in motion. He split it into two wings. John Sedgwick would command the right wing, made up of his own 6th Corps and 5th Corps. This wing's destination was Rappahannock Station. William French would lead the left wing, taking his own 3rd Corps, together with 1st Corps and 2nd Corps, and head for Kelly's Ford, accompanied by George Meade and his staff. John Buford's cavalry division had orders to screen the Army's right, while Judson Kilpatrick's did the same on the left. David McMurtry Gregg's division of horsemen would remain in reserve, guarding the Army's wagons and its line of communication. Given the nature of the ground at Kelly's Ford, Meade believed French's wing would have the greatest chance of success of forcing a crossing. Once across the river, the left wing could swing west to assist Sedgwick at Rappahannock Station, or, if Sedgwick had also met with success, then the two wings could move quickly south and link up at Brandy Station. From Brandy Station, Meade planned to closely pursue the rebel army, which by that time ought to be retreating toward the Rapidan River. Although there was no question that George Meade was undertaking this movement for no other reason than he was under pressure from Washington to do something, his plan nonetheless was straightforward, played to his own army's strengths, and was designed to exploit the enemy's weaknesses, and therefore seemed to have an excellent chance of cracking the Confederate line along the Rappahannock and forcing Lee to give battle at a disadvantage. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation, Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics, we go back to source materials in their original languages, and we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer, or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast. Wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. As we said a few minutes ago, Lee's decision to maintain a bridgehead on the north side of the river at Rappahannock Station was a curious one. The Orange and Alexandria Railroad Bridge spanning the river had been destroyed by the Federals when they abandoned the area in October. To compensate for its loss, the Confederates threw a pontoon bridge across the river about 800 yards upstream of the destroyed railroad bridge. Two earthwork forts constituted the heart of the Confederate defenses on the north bank. 
The smaller of the two was about 100 feet to the left of or west of the railroad tracks, while the larger fort was another 400 feet farther west. A mile-long trench situated on a low ridge connected the two works and extended beyond each one to the river, but both flanks were vulnerable. On the right, the enemy could use the railroad embankment to cover his approach to the smaller fort. And on the left, the trench line was poorly positioned, since there the enemy could also approach without being seen until almost upon the rebel works. In addition, there was no ditch in front of the rebel works, and there was also no abatis, which, as you guys know by now, was when trees were felled in front of the defenses so that the trunks and branches formed a tangled obstacle that would slow down any attack. All of that meant that the Confederates would have to largely depend on firepower alone to repulse any Federal attack. But in that regard, the rebels were handicapped by the fact that the four pieces of artillery deployed in the forts had poor fields of fire because of the layout of the works, and, as we said, the infantry trench line was vulnerable on both flanks. One strength of the position was that a veteran brigade of Louisiana infantry from Jubal Early's division of Yule's Corps occupied the works. The brigade was commanded by Harry Hayes and could boast an outstanding record of service in some of the hottest fighting in the war's eastern theater. Here, though, at Rappahannock Station on November 7th, the Louisiana Tigers were without their brigade commander, since Hayes was off serving on a court of inquiry. Colonel D.B. Penn of the 7th Louisiana was in charge in Hayes' absence. Four regiments, the 6th, 7th, 8th, and 9th Louisiana, were deployed on the north bank holding the bridgehead, while the brigade's other regiment, the 5th Louisiana, was held back on the south bank. Two pieces of the Louisiana Guard Artillery under Lieutenant Robert Moore were positioned in each fort. Robert E. Lee seemed to be under the impression that a brigade or two of rebel infantry could hold the bridgehead against any assault, especially since he thought the Confederate artillery would rake the enemy as they approached. However, not everyone was so confident. Division Commander Jubal Early would write in his after-action report, quote, The works on the north side of the river were, in my judgment, very inadequate and not judiciously laid out or constructed. End quote. Well, the Federals would soon reach the same conclusion as old Jube. At about 11 o'clock on the morning of November 7th, Confederate cavalry pickets reported strong columns of Yankee infantry approaching Rappahannock Station. With Uncle John Sedgwick coming on with 5th and 6th Corps, numbering about 30,000 men, to say the 900 Louisiana Tigers at Rappahannock Station were outnumbered is a bit of an understatement. Colonel Penn, of course, had sounded the alarm, and when Jubal Early arrived on the scene, he quickly ordered up reinforcements. After double-quicking seven miles, 
a brigade of 1,100 North Carolinians, commanded by Colonel Archibald Godwin, hustled across the pontoon bridge and joined the Louisianans, who cheered another arrival, Harry Hayes, who had rode to rejoin his men when he heard the Yankees were on the march. Early had also called up a couple of batteries of artillery and had the guns drop trail on the near side of the river to provide covering fire. When Robert E. Lee, who had also arrived on the scene, ordered a gun to limber up and go over to the north bank, it was unable to do so, since, by that time, Federal sharpshooters from 5th Corps had advanced to within a few yards of the river and brought the pontoon bridge under fire. Three Union batteries also deployed so as to bring the Rebel Works and pontoon bridge under fire, meaning the Confederates would now be hard-pressed to bring over more reinforcements or retreat should a withdrawal become necessary. Lee was uncertain whether the Federal activity at Rappahannock Station would turn into a full-scale attack, or whether it was merely a feint to cover a real crossing downriver at Kelly's Ford. In any case, he believed it was now too late in the day for anything else to happen, so he departed. As he later wrote in his report, quote, The increasing darkness induced the belief that nothing would be attempted until morning. However, John Sedgwick had spent considerable time examining the rebel defenses. While he thought them to be strong, he also identified their many weaknesses, and so while the Union artillery was pounding away at the enemy, the Federal infantry had crept closer to the Confederate works. When the Federal infantry attack came, it was made at dusk by troops of Brigadier General David Russell's division of Horatio Wright's 6th Corps. Wright thought the timing ideal. There was enough daylight as the men moved into position to allow them to see where their attack would go in, while the growing darkness would serve to conceal their charge against the Confederate works. Colonel Peter L. Maker's brigade of Russell's division spearheaded the assault. The 6th Maine and 5th Wisconsin formed the brigade's first line, while two Pennsylvania regiments, the 49th and 119th, were in the second line. Like Robert E. Lee, the Louisianans and North Carolinians manning the Confederate works thought that the fading daylight signaled the end of any possibility the enemy might attack the bridgehead. So the rebels were taken completely by surprise as the Yankees of the 6th Maine and 5th Wisconsin, with bayonets fixed, stormed out of the shadows. Then, as Elmaker put it, quote, a desperate hand-to-hand struggle ensued. A portion of the 20th Maine of Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain's 5th Corps Brigade was on the left of Elmaker's men. After learning that Elmaker's troops were going to attack the enemy works, the 20th Captain Walter Morrill joined the assault with about 50 of his men. For his actions here at Rappahannock Station, Morrill would be awarded the Medal of Honor. As inky darkness covered the landscape, Federals and Confederates engaged in vicious hand-to-hand combat inside the rebel works, stabbing with bayonets and using rifle butts as clubs. Ultimately, when Elmaker also called up his two second-line regiments, 
the 49th and 119th Pennsylvania, federal numbers began to tell at the point of attack as more and more Yankees streamed into the works. The brutality of the close quarters fighting here matched anything witnessed up to that point in the war. A New Jersey officer walked over the field after the battle and noted, quote, Here, the unusual sight of death by bayonet wounds was witnessed, end quote. With the rebel defenses cracked wide open, dozens of Louisianans manning the two forts surrendered while others sought to escape across the pontoon bridge, even though it was swept by enemy fire. With the Yankees clearly overwhelming the defenders of the two rebel forts, to the left of those works, Godwin pivoted some of his North Carolinians to seal off the enemy breakthrough. The Tar Heels poured musket fire into Elmaker's Federals, but despite Archibald Godwin's outstanding tactical leadership, the Confederates' situation was desperate. The rebels' predicament grew worse when Russell ordered another of his brigades, this one commanded by Colonel Emory Upton, to advance and assault the portion of the Confederate line to its front. Upton, to Elmaker's right, had his brigade formed up in two lines of battle, with two Pennsylvania regiments in the 2nd line and the 5th Maine and 121st New York up front. When he received Russell's order to attack, Upton immediately launched the 5th Maine and 121st New York forward. There was no time to stop and load, so Upton ordered the men to do so as they advanced. When that was accomplished, Upton ordered the men to double quick. About 150 yards from the Confederate defenses, Upton had the men throw off their knapsacks and fix bayonets. He cautioned them not to fire a shot until they were within the enemy works. Charging forward silently, only raising a mighty shout when their charge was within 10 yards of crashing home, the main men and New Yorkers struck the portion of the rebel line held by the 54th North Carolina like a thunderbolt. The colonel of the 5th Maine boasted that, quote, so sudden and unexpected was our movement upon them that the enemy seemed paralyzed, end quote. In his report, Upton would write that, quote, the work was carried at the point of the bayonet and without firing a shot, the enemy fought stubbornly over their colors, but being overpowered, soon surrendered. The 121st New York then turned to the left to hit the rear of the North Carolinians who were causing trouble for Elmaker's Federals. Meanwhile, the 5th Maine turned to the right to hit the two Louisiana regiments holding the far left of the rebel line. And quicker than you can say, Bob's your uncle, Hundreds of Louisianans and North Carolinians were surrendering or rushing toward the Rappahannock, hoping to escape across the river. As the Confederate bridgehead collapsed, Archibald Godwin gathered together a grab bag force of North Carolinians and Louisianans and personally led several charges in an effort to reach the pontoon bridge. But according to Jubal Early's after action report, quote, when his men had dwindled to 60 or 70, the rest having been captured, killed, wounded, or lost in the darkness, Godwin was literally overpowered by mere force of numbers and was taken with his arms in his hands. 
Up and down the line, hundreds of Confederate soldiers surrendered, but hundreds more tried to escape. Those lucky enough to reach the pontoon bridge had to decide whether to swim across the river or run across the bridge swept by enemy artillery and musket fire. Those who chose to take to the water were fired upon by Federals lining the riverbank. Many perished, either from enemy led or drowning. Two who made it, though, were the commanders of the 6th Louisiana and 7th Louisiana. The most prominent escapee was Harry Hayes. He had done his best to rally his Louisianans, but as the situation descended into chaos, he was surrounded and nearly captured. However, as Hayes was about to hand over his sword, his horse was startled by something and bolted. The surprised Federals opened fire, but the bullets missed their mark as Hayes raced away, steering his mount toward the pontoon bridge. The commander of the 9th Louisiana also galloped across the bridge to safety. But when all was said and done, the collapse of the Rappahannock Station bridgehead was a disaster for the Confederates. There was little Division Commander Jubal Early could do, as two of his brigades were wrecked in front of his eyes, there just across the river. Old Jube would lament, quote, I had the mortification to hear the final struggle of these devoted men and to be made painfully aware of their capture, without the possibility of being able to go to their relief. Once it was clear that no one else was going to escape across the bridge, Early called for volunteers and had them set fire to the span so that the Yankees couldn't use it to cross the river. Hayes' brigade and Godwin's brigade suffered devastating losses at Rappahannock Station. The Louisianans lost 702 killed, wounded, and captured, while the North Carolinians suffered 928 casualties, for a total Confederate loss of 1,630 men. The four guns in the forts were also lost, as well as six flags. When muster was called for both brigades three days later, fewer than 500 men answered the call. Federal losses were much, much lower. Elmaker's brigade lost 327 men, while Upton suffered just 63 casualties. After the war, a Tar Heel veteran offered a bitter assessment of the defeat, saying, quote, The wisdom of the generalship by which our two brigades were placed on the north bank of a deep river to meet the advance of a great army is not apparent. Well, the federal victory at Rappahannock Station was the second of two setbacks suffered by Robert E. Lee on November 7th. The other was at Kelly's Ford, some six miles downstream. Kelly's Ford was defended by the men of Major General Robert Rhodes' division of Ewell's Corps. In addition to Kelly's, Rhodes was responsible for three other Fords across the Rappahannock. Most of his division was camped about a mile and a half back from the river, so it could guard all four crossing points and respond to threats accordingly. On the 7th, while Sedgwick's right-wing forces were closing up on Rappahannock Station, 
William Prince's Third Corps on the Federal left had marched to Kelly's Ford. The arrival of the Yankees just after noon caught the North Carolinians defending the Ford by surprise. As Rhodes ordered reinforcements forward, the Federals positioned no less than nine batteries of artillery on the high northern bank and opened a heavy fire across the river on the rebels manning the forward rifle pits and stationed a bit farther back in the small hamlet of Kellysville. With the Confederates busy keeping their heads down, Federal Brigade Commander Colonel Regis de Trobriand ordered the first U.S. sharpshooters to wade across the river and secure a bridgehead on the opposite shore. Once that was accomplished, de Trobriand ordered the rest of his brigade across the river. Their swift and complete success at Kelly's Ford cost the Federals just 42 men, while on the Confederate side, the 2nd North Carolina and 30th North Carolina lost around 330 men, mostly captured. By 3 o'clock that afternoon, the Yankees had thrown up a pontoon bridge and an entire Federal division had crossed to the far side of the Rappahannock at Kelly's Ford. Robert Rhodes hesitated to assault the enemy lodgment, since the Yankees sensibly remained close to the riverbank, under cover of their massed artillery across the way. Finally, Rhodes decided the enemy was too strong for any reasonable chance of success, and he gave up on the idea of throwing the Yankees back across the river. With the twin federal successes at Rappahannock Station and Kelly's Ford on November 7th, George Meade now firmly held the initiative in this new campaign. Since Lee's position immediately behind the Rappahannock was no longer tenable, the Confederate commander wasted no time in issuing orders that pulled the army back to the southwest to a position between Brandy Station and Culpeper. The orders came as an unwelcome surprise to most of the army, since the men had assumed campaigning was done for the year and had started working on their winter quarters. One soldier in the 16th North Carolina was philosophical about it all, though, saying, quote, Some of the men had completed nice cabins and expected to move into them the next morning, but such is war. In the darkness, the Confederates pulled back to their new positions. A.P. Hill's corps was on the left, while Dick Yule's corps held the right. The withdrawal was completed with little fuss, and the rebel rear guard was hurrying to join their comrades in the new line as the sun rose on the morning of November 8th. Despite his twin successes at Rappahannock Station and Kelly's Ford, George Meade didn't immediately pursue the withdrawing Confederates. In fact, he didn't even realize the rebels were pulling back. Instead, Meade expected Lee would launch a major counterattack at Kelly's Ford, and issued orders to strengthen the federal position there. He also ordered Sedgwick to put up a new pontoon bridge at Rappahannock Station and mount a demonstration there, designed to distract the enemy, who, Meade assumed, would be attacking Kelly's Ford. When Meade finally realized on the 8th that Lee had pulled back, he ordered the various infantry corps to push southwest after the rebels, while the Federal cavalry covered the Army's flanks. 
However, that advance took most of the day, and by that time, Robert E. Lee had decided to withdraw once again, this time below the Rapidan River. Lee was pulling back again because he'd realized his new line was vulnerable to being turned since his left flank was up in the air. So the Confederate wagons made the trek toward the Rapidan during the day on the 8th, and after dark, the rebel infantry followed. Once safely below the river, most of the Confederate soldiers found themselves occupying the same camps they'd been in before stepping off on the Bristow Station campaign the previous month. As a new day dawned on the morning of November 9th, Meade discovered Lee had pulled back once again. Any delight Meade may have enjoyed over the successes at Rappahannock Station and Kelly's Ford was quickly snuffed out when telegrams from Washington started to arrive, expressing displeasure that Meade hadn't pressed forward aggressively enough to catch Lee before he pulled back behind the Rapidan. George Meade pondered his options. The weather had taken a turn for the worse on the 8th, and if Meade had his druthers, he'd now go into winter quarters. But, with Washington once more breathing down his neck, that might not be possible. Knowing the decision wasn't his to make, Meade wired Halleck and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton on November 13th, asking for a meeting. George Meade went to Washington the next day. He said and wrote little about that visit to the Capitol, but he obviously didn't receive permission to go into winter quarters, because after his return to the Army, he began to plan another forward movement, this one across the Rapidan. And with the next episode, we'll talk about how Meade's maneuvering and Lee's response led to the two armies facing off at Mine Run. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Maps of the Bristow Station and Mine Run Campaigns by Bradley M. Gottfried. This is a re-recommendation from back when we did Bristow Station, but it does include Rappahannock Station and Kelly's Ford, as well as Mine Run. So, well, there you go. It's a good resource for all of these actions, engagements, battles, and not-quite-battles. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find posts on each episode, our contact info, photos if you're wondering what we look like, and links to the podcast Facebook page and Instagram. There's also information about joining the Strawfoot Brigade over on Patreon. Just like Brett M., Randy Paul, Bradley C., S. Ryan and Robert B. did recently. Yep. Uh, thanks, one and all. We appreciate your support of the podcast. Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Rich and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. <laughs>